Good afternoon. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which this year is celebrating its 10th anniversary. And I'm excited to be here. Um, I probably know less about Dodd-Frank than many of you or most of you in the audience. Uh, as a simple constitutional lawyer, I've been following, spent probably more than half my time, maybe even two-thirds the last year, following Obamacare and the various constitutional legal challenges, uh, debating around the country, writing about it, briefing. And it turns out, you might be surprised, there are constitutional defects with other pieces of legislation that the government uh, has thrown up uh, in the last uh, year and, and, and even before then. Uh, and this apparently is one of them. Uh, we'll, we'll learn about that. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010 was intended to, quote, promote the financial stability of the United States by improving accountability and transparency in the financial system, to end too big to, to fail, to protect the American taxpayer by ending bailouts, to protect consumers from abusive financial services practices, and for other purposes. It's an extraordinary complex law. Uh, requiring almost a dozen federal agencies to act and hundreds of uh, new rules to be promulgated. There's been debate, uh, a lot of it, over whether the legislation will accomplish its stated intent that I just read to you. But there's also a growing debate and discussion about the constitutional effects uh, or uh, problems, perhaps, with the law, primarily due to separation of powers, vagueness, and due process issues. Questions like, does the bill provide effective oversight by any branch of government, Congress, the President, or the judiciary? How can constitutional concerns about the law's grants of regulatory powers be resolved? With us to discuss these important issues are my colleague Mark Calabria, and also Ambassador Boyden Gray, and Mr. Timothy McTaggart. I'll introduce all of them, and then sit down, and they will uh, discuss these issues. Uh, Mark will go first, kind of giving a an overview of Dodd-Frank and, and what, it's, what it does or what it's supposed to do, followed by Ambassador Gray's presentation of the constitutional case against uh, at least a part uh, of the legislation, and then Mr. McTaggart will respond. Mark Calabria is Director of Financial, Reg uh, Financial Regulatory Studies at the Cato Institute. Before that, he spent six years as a member of the senior staff of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, where he handled issues related to housing, mortgage finance, economics, banking, and insurance. Before Capitol Hill, Mark served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and held a variety of positions at Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies, the National Association of Home Builders, and the National Association of Realtors. So I'll be asking him whether the mortgage refinance I just did was, uh, uh, was a good deal. Um, Mark has a doctorate in economics from the George Mason University. Next, C. Boyden Gray is the former ambassador to the European Union and former special envoy for Eurasian energy diplomacy. He also served as special envoy, envoy for EU affairs, as White House counsel in the administration uh, of George H.W. Bush, as legal counsel to then Vice President Bush, and as counsel to the Presidential Task Force on Regulatory Relief during the Reagan administration. Before and after his service in the Reagan and Bush administrations, Ambassador Gray was a partner in uh, Wilmer Cutler Pickering Hale and Door, where his practice focused on a range of regulatory matters with an emphasis on environment, energy, antitrust, public health, and information technology. Ambassador Gray earned his bachelor's degree magna cum laude from Harvard and his JD with high honors 
from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. After law school, he clerked for Chief Justice Earl Warren. And next, Timothy McTaggart is a partner in the Washington office of Pepper Hamilton, where he focuses on bank and financial services regulatory matters. Earlier in his career, he served as the Delaware State Bank Commissioner and as counsel to the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. As the Delaware Bank Commissioner, Mr. McTaggart supervised and set policy for retail banks, trust companies, wholesale banks, credit card banks, savings banks, mortgage companies, and other financial services companies with operations across the nation. He started his legal career in the legal division of the Board of Governors of the Fed, is published widely, has served as chair of the ABA's Trust and Investment Services Subcommittee of their Banking Law Committee, uh, and is a cum laude graduate of Harvard and his law degree also from Harvard. So please welcome these gentlemen and let's uh, begin our discussion. Thank you, Ellie, and it really is an honor to be on such a panel with such distinguished panelists. Uh, I guess I'm going to be our token non-lawyer today, because my training is an economist, but as I quite often quipped when I was in the Banking Committee staff, that apparently I was qualified to write legislation, just not interpret it. Uh, but I am going to try to give you an overview. I'm going to stay away from the constitutional issues, which the rest of the panel will do, but I'm going to give you an overview of what's in Dodd-Frank with a little bit of policy analysis uh, at the end. I'm going to start with covering what I think are the three core areas of Dodd-Frank, and there are a tremendous number of areas covered in the bill, uh, and unfortunately many of those I'm going to leave untouched, but that doesn't mean they're not important. I'm just going to focus on the three that I think are most important. Uh, the first of which is the regulation and resolution over what are called systemically important institutions, and these include banks and non-banks. And the intent really here is that we won't have any more AIGs, we won't have any more Bear Stearns, uh, and that's because regulators will have the power to prevent these institutions from taking excessive risks. Um, essentially, non-bank holding companies that are deemed systemically important will be subjected to Federal Reserve's current supervisory regime for bank holding companies. Essentially, this means that these entities will be required to hold additional capital. They will have increased examination. They will have increased prudential regulation, all by the Federal Reserve staff. Uh, also part of this regime is expanded resolution mechanism in the case of insolvency. And this is essentially an administrative bankruptcy, which closely but not exactly mirrors the FDIC's current receivership <laughs> authorities. Uh, the two most significant changes in Dodd-Frank is that the FDIC now has receivership, receivership authority over the entire holding company for banks. Previously, it was simply the depository subsidiary, uh, in that such authority will also extend to non-bank financial holding companies that are deemed systemically important. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of deeming going on. So uh, who is actually going to be doing this? All of this deeming is going to be done by the newly created Financial Stability Oversight Council. Uh, I like to think of this as sort of a beefed up president's working group because it's essentially the same people who run the president's working group. It's really all the major financial bank regulators. Uh, and their primary purpose, among others, is to sit around and talk about which institutions represent a systemic risk to our economy, identify those institutions, uh, and then tell the Federal Reserve to do something about it to avoid this problem. Um, so I do want to make, a, a, I think, an important side note here, which is 
Ilya mentioned uh, and has talked about in the purposes of the act to end too big to fail. For all intents and purposes, the structure of the bill with too large, too big to fail institutions is really to manage too big to fail. That we will have regulators in these institutions ahead of time, we will minimize the risk, and if something goes wrong, we will resolve them with a receivership regime so that losses are not imposed upon the taxpayer. Uh, that's the intent. So uh, despite whatever the bill might have said at the beginning, too big to fail is alive and well, and it really is an attempt to balance, its, balance it rather than end it. Uh, the second most significant part in my mind of Dodd-Frank is the establishment of a Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, which is nominally housed within the Federal Reserve, but operationally independent. Essentially what the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau does is bring together all the consumer protection powers of the federal bank regulators under one roof. In doing so, it also separates the prudential regulation of banks from consumer protection regulation. Uh, an important aspect of the CFPB is it also expands federal oversight to non-bank financial companies, such as payday lenders, check cashers. Um, and while these non-banks have always been subject, long been subject to FTC deceptive and unfair trade practices enforcement, the CFPB establishes a dedicated examination and enforcement staff for non-banks. Uh, and while I won't go into details here, the Dodd-Frank Act does contain numerous exemptions and exceptions for various industries under this enforcement. So it's not all non-banks, it's just a lot of non-bank industry. Uh, the Dodd-Frank also adds uh, to consumer financial protection a concept called abusive, uh, which I think this is going to have a lot of important impact in the long run. We have a long-standing concepts of unfair and deceptive, uh, and because the definition of uh, abusive is quite flexible, it has the potential of having a tremendous amount of impact. Uh, been known to quip that we don't exactly know what its impact is going to be now, but I suspect after about 10 years of litigation, we'll figure out what it means. Um, also receiving significant attention in Dodd-Frank is the regulation and trading of derivatives. Uh, the act imposes a requirement on swaps and derivatives that if such can be accepted for clearing by a recognized clearinghouse, then they must be cleared. Uh, the thinking underlying this requirement is that moving counterparty risk from the bilateral over-the-counter market to organized and regulated exchanges will make such risk easier for regulators to manage. Uh, in the case where regulators and exchanges fail to ma adequately manage this risk, the Act also establishes a procedure by which clearinghouses can gain access to the Federal Reserve's discount window. As is common throughout the Act, there are various exemptions and exemptions to the derivatives provisions as well. Uh, and while my fellow panelists will touch upon this point, uh, it bears noting that from reading the Act, it is near impossible to determine ex ante which derivatives will actually be subject to mandatory clearing. The determination of such is completely left up to the regulator. Uh, while those three provisions are the heart of Dodd-Frank, as I mentioned, the Act is quite extensive, touches upon a number of issues. Uh, for instance, Title 14 on mortgage reform could easily be the basis of several conferences in and of itself. The Act also contains a variety of provisions significantly impacting our securities market, including important changes to the oversight of credit rating agencies, hedge funds, and broker-dealers. Uh, I should also note that uh, perhaps more importantly than what is in Dodd-Frank is what is not. While I will not go into detail, it is worth noting that generally agreed upon contributors to the financial crisis, including the housing GSEs, loose monetary policy, global capital imbalances, none of which are addressed in the Act, so I, I think it is important to recognize uh, there's as much missing as there is in the Act. Uh, in wrapping up my remarks, I want to end at what I see usually as the beginning of the legislative process, uh, and that's with a brief discussion of the economic policy assumptions that underlie the narrative that informs the legislation. Uh, the structure of Dodd-Frank is based upon the belief that expensive, 
that is predatory credit led to a wave of mortgage defaults that undermined the solvency of our financial institutions. Let me again emphasize the perspective of Dodd-Frank is that credit was not too cheap or easily available, but it was in fact too expensive. The Act also proceeds from the assumption that had regulators possessed sufficient discretionary power, the crisis could have been avoided. Hence, the response of the Act is to further empower financial regulators with additional discretionary power. Also underlying the Act is a belief that large, unregulated segments of the financial system, be they shadow banks, insurance companies, or hedge funds, were outside the purview of financial regulators, and that such unregulated financial institutions transferred losses to the regulated sectors of our financial system. The response of Dodd-Frank is then to expand regulation to cover these unregulated sectors. A corollary to this belief is that centralizing risk under the control of regulators will make such risk easier to manage. I will not go into why I believe these assumptions, which serve as the foundation of Dodd-Frank, are false, but will simply end with the observation that engaging the effectiveness of any piece of legislation, we must begin with asking ourselves if the narrative that informed that legislation is reflective of reality. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, I have published a little bit about this, and um, so I'm a little reluctant to go over and repeat things that I've already written, a uh, paper that was uh, on the Federalist <coughs> Society website, um, uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post at the end of uh, December. Um, so I'm going to summarize these. Uh, points. Um, it's the, the statute is very, very complicated, but I think the uh, the uh, objection uh, to the key provisions of it uh, is actually fairly simple. And let me just say that it, it that it's a combination of uh, incredible vagueness uh, and lack of uh, of political oversight, which. Um, undermines, if not destroys, the theory of the separation of powers, which is pretty central to um, our government accountability. And you'll hear the other side after I sit down, so don't worry about me overstating the case. Um, uh, at least I don't have to worry about overstating the case, because I... Uh, a lot of people have thought that those of us uh, challenging the constitutionality of this statute were uh, pinning our arguments on the uh, non-delegation doctrine, and that's really not quite true. Um, so let me back up a little bit and say that what uh, has concerned many of us uh, are, are the three central, what we view as the three central titles of this, but we're not going to go, and I'm not going to go into everything in the statute. As you have heard, it's pretty complex and pretty uh, voluminous. But I'm going to focus on the Stability Council Title I, uh, which, which has the capacity to um, designate a lot of non-banks for regulation and decide who can be seized and resolved under Title II. And so the Resolution Authority under Title II uh, will be part of what I am looking at. And then Title X, the Consumer um, Authority, which you've, which you've heard about. Um, there is an enormous amount of delegation. There are hundreds of rulemakings. Uh, these rulemakings have no standards. The regulators can do just about what they want to do. 
And uh, there, there uh, are questions about whether Congress uh, can delegate this kind of, of, of vague authority. Well, the Supreme Court's attitude is, I think this is sort of encapsulated by, by Justice Scalia, if Congress wants to give up the power, it's, it's got the right to do it. Um, and generally speaking, that's where um, the, the court has come out in the years since Shakra Poultry, which is the great case, the last great case where uh, the Supreme Court actually um, ruled the statute unconstitutional. Um, but the point we want to make, at least I want to make here, is that as vague as this delegation is, um, the problem is hard to get at because of the Supreme Court's reluctance to, um, to throw statutes out. What the Supreme Court has done, and the lower courts have done, is use the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, which is to narrow statutes to avoid uh, the constitutional problems that might otherwise be raised, reinterpreting them <coughs> uh, in classic uh, administrative law fashion. What happens in this bill, it's like, like a demonic uh, brain behind it all. Probably my, uh, my colleague up here is responsible for some of this, this very clever drafting. But what the bill does is take away from the courts the ability to narrow um, the statutory interpretation. And that's at the fundamental level here, um, the problem, is that uh, the courts are deprived of, of ability to narrow um, these statutes. And when you combine that with the lack of presidential oversight, because most of the actors have uh, independent authority, and you combine that with preclusion or limits to uh, what the Congress can do, uh, the Consumer Bureau, for example, is budget is, comes out of the Fed, and the statute explicitly prohibits the appropriations committees of the House and the Senate from reviewing uh, um, the Consumer Bureau's budget. Now, I don't know that that's really going to be binding. I can't see a sheriff uh, marching into an appropriations hearing room and arresting the chairman for uh, holding a hearing on the budget. I just don't think that's going to happen. But, um, but the statute certainly doesn't want Congress... Uh, paying any attention to what's going on. Um, so, so that's the framework. Uh, enormous amount of, of vague delegation with no capacity to clear it up. And uh, what you have is, with the resolution authority, you may have another series of bailouts that have no real supervision. Uh, that was a big, big political problem with, with TARP. Uh, of course, um, some of you may remember that the first version, and this was a Republican version now, I'm not trying to make a political point here, a partisan point. This was a, it was a Republican Treasury that came out with a three-page or a three-paragraph bill that had no judicial review at all. Uh, that didn't survive ultimately in Congress, but um, they've come around again and, and created a bailout authority which uh, really does pretty well skirt judicial review. For example, um, the linchpin of the, of the, of the designation um, reaffirmed by a letter from the Treasury General Counsel to the Washington Post after my article uh, and made central in the FD and the Federal Reserve Board rulemaking uh, is that these designations for systemic uh, seizure can only occur when there's a risk to the financial stability of the United States. But it is that risk, that standard, that is, that is with great precision cut out from court review. 
That's the one thing the courts can't review, uh, not even the Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, there is no check on what can be seized. And remember, these are um, going to be non-banks. It's one thing to give the government great leeway uh, to seize um, and, and control the disposition of a insured or, or, or subsidized institution, a bank with deposits. Another thing to take someone who's not regulated, who hasn't caused any trouble, uh, uh, and who will not be, um, will not have to be shown to be of any great risk to the U.S. Uh, financial system in any way that's reviewable. That's that's in uncharted water. Uh, the Treasury General Counsel's response uh, to, 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 to my complaints about the lack of judicial review um, uh, was that, well, um, there is this standard. And remember, uh, said, said the letter, um, it's modeled after current FDIC procedures, but that's not quite accurate. The FDIC uh, is reviewable. Uh, through ordinary judicial review uh, under under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, and uh, I can cite you to analyses that that show quite clearly that um, the FDIC today ignores um, what courts have told it to pay attention to. So the answer uh, of this legislation to the FDIC's refusal to pay attention to what the courts have ruled is to simply um, take away. Uh, the ability of the courts to rule the way they <laughs> the way they ruled, and and uh, the Cleveland Fed has said, well, this will prevent the courts from messing around too much with what the FDIC does. Well, we'll see whether the Supreme Court is going to accept all of this. I'm skeptical um, when you combine it with with all of the other <clears throat> all the other defects. The the bailout authority contains um, I call it a bailout authority. The resolution authority contains the capacity for uh, the FDIC to borrow from the from the um, Treasury uh, to make favored payments. Um, that's a loaded word, favored, but to make payments that, that can't be reviewed uh, in any objective way. And then, um, so they don't have to rely on an appropriation from Congress to pay back. They can they can they can assess non-banks uh, for um, a tax, a fee, an assessment. Uh, to, to pay back the loan. All of this done without any appropriations, oversight, uh, or judicial review uh, by, uh, by the courts. I think that's going to be hard for uh, the Supreme Court to uh, accept. I may be wrong, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. Um, the consumer, the consumer uh, power uh, is uh, one that enables it to rewrite every single credit law in the country um, and, and oust the primary regulator of any uh, ability to uh, have a say in how the law is being rewritten and, of course, in, as well as how it is going to be enforced because the consumer authority will have, in most cases, exclusive enforcement jurisdiction over uh, these various statutes. There is basically uh, no judicial review because the court is assumed to be um, granting deference uh, to what the consumer um, consumer bureau says. Uh, this may seem like an, anom an uh, sort of an innocuous thing, deference. Well, I mean, uh, but for people like me who spent a lifetime wrestling with administrative law concepts and 
um, uh, Chevron One and Chevron Two, uh, for those of you who are familiar enough. How many people here have ever heard of Chevron One, Chevron Two? Well, there's quite a few. It's not too bad. Um, uh, what the statute does is diabolically uh, grant deference to whatever the Consumer Bureau says to override whatever uh, the primary regulator had thought the Congress had said about the statute when it was originally passed. And there really isn't any standard guiding the Consumer Bureau when it rewrites the laws except for let's make sure that credit is fairly available. Um, and that's about the only standard. It's very, very open-ended. We'll see whether the courts will, will, let, that, uh, will let that ride. The, um, the, the appointment process is, is strange, but the Consumer Bureau is housed inside the Fed, but it's independent of the Fed. And of course, the Fed is independent of the White House to begin with. So you have a very complicated uh, sort of series of cutouts as to who can say anything to the, uh, to the director of the Consumer Bureau. Uh, and when you add all these powers up, the power of the, of the Stability Council to, uh, to regulate on almost any pretext, non-regulated entities, uh, the power to designate someone as um, a systemic risk to the United States without having uh, the courts any ability to check, uh, to check that, uh, having the Consumer Bureau telling um, these institutions what, how they can um, uh, lend their money out. You add all this up with no clear standards uh, and no ability for any branch, political branch, to, uh, to um, get a grip, I think, I think you have a, a real problem. Now, how the Supreme Court sorts it out, uh, I'm not going to uh, try to predict, but I go back to where I started that what the court has done consistently over the last 50 or 60 years is narrow um, statutes where they present a problem. In this case, this, the courts are basically um, taken out of the statutory interpretation business, um, and so I don't know how uh, they're going to uh, to save these statutes from what I think is is a collapse of um, government authority into one one single bureaucratic entity that is utilizing judicial, legislative, and executive authority. Ultimately, when you have no bright lines, this is something the Wall Street Journal pointed out, um, you, you have a system where it's not clear who's really in charge, um, who's really running the show. Is it Wall Street? Is it, is it the Treasury? Uh, there was a marvelous article about the federal officials um, um, going to meet the, the Wall Street officials at the, at the Willard in a <coughs> hideaway called The Nest, which I thought was a great place to have uh, our public policy uh, developed. And on that note, I will, I will sit down. Well, good afternoon. It's a delight to uh, uh, be here. I appreciate the invitation from the Cato Institute. I salute them for uh, presenting these uh, very important questions, and I look forward to uh, participation from the audience. I thank the uh, panelists, uh, and particularly um, would uh, pay a special tribute to uh, Ambassador 
Gray, who's uh, raised some uh, very important issues and uh, has uh, continued to uh, focus uh, significant uh, policy and other uh, legal uh, issues for uh, you know for the debate today, but but more broadly within the within the community. Uh, I am uh, a partner in a, in a law firm. Uh, I am speaking on my own behalf, not on behalf of um, uh, clients' uh, interests. Uh, we obviously uh, advocate on behalf of clients and have uh, raised various issues, and will continue to do so. You know, as the uh, Dodd Frank bill. Uh, is implemented and uh, executed and perhaps revised, modified, uh, interpreted, uh, and, and the like. But I am prepared uh, this afternoon to uh, describe uh, the constitutional bases for uh, supporting uh, the framework uh, that is uh, that is in place. So there is a distinction between uh, policy uh, issues or challenges versus you know whether or not it goes to the heart of being uh, constitutionally infirm. As you know, has already been said, uh, the presumption and the very strong presumption is that Congress passes laws that are constitutional. And in fact, the uh, uh, judicial uh, doctrines of um, uh, constitutional avoidance and so forth that you know have been uh, raised by Ambassador. Gray are ones that um, the Congress can take, you know, great comfort in, uh, either uh, serendipitously or uh, or otherwise, so that the courts, you know, will in fact try to avoid uh, constitutional challenges and construe uh, provisions uh, narrowly. Now, in certain instances, you know, I will uh, differ uh, with the remarks uh, just made respectfully because I think perhaps they protest too much in terms of where there may be uh, controversies, and let me. Uh, perhaps uh, make the case and uh, obviously welcome uh, further viewpoints as to um, uh, the merits of that. Uh, the other point to make, which is a very critical one, uh, is if, in fact, there were a constitutional infirmity within the overall statute, uh, what would the consequences be? Uh, there are severability uh, clauses within the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, it's important to note that uh, it's conceivable that if uh, there were uh, a, a difficulty of a constitutional dimension that uh, most likely the preponderance of the act you know would would remain and the uh, uh, issue that uh, you know uh, was raised and became a, a issue of contra uh, controversy for the constitution you know, would be isolated and would uh, be uh, handled that's not entirely uh, always the the outcome um, uh, but severability clauses likewise have this you know, strong presumption that this is the intent of Congress. I mean, the courts can uh, go against severability clauses, but again, it's, it's very unlikely. More typically in the common law, uh, review is uh, you know, coming up with a variety of standards uh, by the courts to identify uh, what Congress intended. Uh, and this is, of course, a hardy issue in the in the healthcare uh, debate as to whether or not certain aspects of the law are core. And would the con and it's a hypothetical exercise, of course, uh, would the Congress have passed the law without this particular area that has been viewed as being uh, constitutionally infirm? With all uh, due respect, I don't think we'll see that here because of the combination of the um, severability clauses within Dodd Frank, and similarly. Uh, the likelihood that the issues that might uh, become subject to constitutional challenge are not ones that would uh, 
be inconsistent with precedent that said that the, the law should survive. Okay, in terms of uh, taking one step back, uh, since we are at the, the Cato Institute, uh, we should uh, certainly pay tribute to the uh, beauty of the American uh, political system and the Amer American political culture and the um, uh, uh, you know, great grace that we have uh, received over many years by relying on the checks and balances within the, the three, uh, three branches. So it's not just the separation of powers, but obviously the checks and balances among and between the powers uh, as and when uh, appropriate. And, um, you know, the, the one of the checks and balances that maybe gets a little bit of a short shrift, uh, notwithstanding Montesquieu and Locke and, and others, is limits on the jurisdiction of courts by the legislature. I mean, there's obviously, um, you know, we all know from our uh, civic textbooks and, and, and so forth, the uh, focus and the attention on presidential vetoes, obviously the uh, powerful role of, uh, of judicial review, but there is a check and balance, which is the you know, ability for the legislature to limit uh, the jurisdiction of the, you know, of the courts. Um, you know, we can talk about what that, you know, extreme case uh, might be, but I'll, I'll hold that, you know, to the, to the side for, you know, for a moment. Um, in terms of just some data, uh, as of 2002, which was the last year that we, uh, and I, I should uh, just pause momentarily and say that um, we'll probably put some uh, written materials uh, together and, and look to publish them. I should thank my colleagues, uh, Steve Harvey, uh, Greg Novak, partners of mine uh, at Pepper, as well as Matt Silver, another colleague, uh, for helping uh, present uh, or prepare certain uh, data uh, in conjunction with this uh, presentation. As I said, I think we'll likely publish. But when we looked, as of 2002, the last year that statistics apparently were formally compiled by the federal government and made publicly available, uh, only about 160 federal laws have ever been found by the Supreme Court to be un unconstitutional uh, in whole or in part. The first law, of course, being um, the famous case of Marbury v. Madison and the Judiciary Act of uh, uh, 1789. A majority of the decisions since have involved issues of individual rights, civil rights, subversion, uh, state sovereignty, criminal procedure, or free speech. And with regard to subversion, I'll note that in the 1950s and 60s, the Supreme Court decided over 50 cases involving communism and subversion uh, in, the, in the government. So again, that gives you some context of, uh, of um, the framework where laws have been found to be uh, unconstitutional. Uh, you know, we're wanting to find uh, a general business regulatory law to be found unconstitutional based upon you know, that review of the uh, of the data and the and the record. Uh, so to just return for a moment before getting into the specifics of, of Dodd Frank, but you know in terms of the the concepts and the, and the background, I mean it's absolutely clear that that Congress can limit uh, the jurisdiction of courts, including the appellate uh, jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Congress, of course, cannot touch the original jurisdiction uh, of the Supreme Court, but uh, they have uh, complete authority to set the uh, lower courts um, 
mechanisms and processes, and of course it's evolved over time uh, as the country has expanded and those needs have changed and the circuits have changed and uh, the membership uh, uh, in terms of number of, of uh, positions have, have changed even on the Supreme Court uh, throughout our history. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not ironclad or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to warm you up a bit to the idea that there is this concept that the legislature, you know, does have a significant role in checking um, the judicial branch uh, potentially through uh, limiting its, its jurisdiction. The most extreme, and I'm not prepared to speak on this, you know, goes back to uh, English times in terms of so-called ouster clauses, which are you know, sort of in disfavor, uh, to say the least, historically, and was not the basis for, uh, I would suggest, the basis for the, the concept of uh, checks and balances by the, uh, the legislature vis-a-vis -vis the, the court's jurisdictions. But, you know, this is not something that just began, obviously, with the, with the United States uh, Constitution, the theory of of um, separation of powers and the appropriate checks and balances, you obviously predate uh, the, the Constitution and the various antecedents. All right, so let's talk about uh, the various, uh, a couple of the key points raised in, uh, in Dodd-Frank, and um, I will take the liberty of taking the easiest one first for me, and uh, sort of work my way, I guess, from easiest to, to most difficult. Uh, with regard, it, it, the, the first one I wanna uh, bear down on uh, you know, has, has been raised, uh, which is the uh, so-called orderly uh, resolution authority, which pertains to the so-called significantly important financial institutions. Uh, this is the role that the FDIC will now have uh, post the enactment of Dodd-Frank uh, with entities that are not, strictly speaking, uh, commercial banks. So uh, there is a uh, review process, which we can talk about shortly in terms of the uh, the FSOC entity making the decision as to who is a significantly important financial institution and whether it has reached the, the point where uh, it uh, needs to be put into a receivership or a conservatorship. And then the FDIC you know, steps into, uh, into that role. And, um, you know, the complaint is that... Um, you know, I guess, I guess several fold that uh, uh, the, the, you know, that there's a procedural due process argument that the, the mechanism for how uh, that uh, resolution is going to be arranged and, and, uh, and administered, the ability to challenge the appointment of that uh, receivership is on a, a very accelerated uh, basis. Um, Depending on how you count, somewhere between you know 24 to 48 hours in the uh, in the federal uh, district courts, um, but there is notice and there is uh, a hearing. Uh, there are opportunities for the Treasury Department to waive uh, notice. Um, so I mean, I'm prepared to argue facts that are uh, against my interest in, uh, in in the in the interest of, of you know being completely completely fair. Um, you know uh, the other the other question is whether the uh, that process is done in in secret that there there lacks transparency uh, that there's not the um, uh, you know fullness of, of understanding you know what's uh, what's uh, occurring with uh, with the government so so let me make you know let me make a couple points I mean there is a distinction a very long 
uh, a well-known distinction and well-held distinction between Title I courts and Title III courts. So Title III courts are what we think of in terms of the District Court, the Court of Appeals, and of course, uh, the Supreme Court. Um, some of the challenges to authority by the legislature, just wait for a second. Uh, uh, some of the challenges, no, no, some of the challenges to the, the authority by the legislature deal with the so-called Title I courts, which pertain to um, utilization of uh, regulatory, uh, just wait for a second. Uh, Sorry, we're under construction. Yes. For, uh, <laughs> It'll be a beautiful building when it's, when it's complete, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe that too. But the point is that um, you know, the, some of this, the, the precedent bears on uh, Title I and uh, the legislative processes to implement um, uh, frameworks that uh, Congress, Congress has enacted. So think in terms of the, the tax court or um, you know, a variety of other uh, Title I uh, courts as opposed to uh, courts, you know, the federal district courts and the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court, and, and, and the like. Now, uh, the Northern Pipelines case, uh, which was the challenge to the bankruptcy court, which is a Title I court, uh, is cited and raised here as a uh, possible uh, difficulty for the, um, uh, the FDIC orderly resolution uh, process. But again, I, I think it's one of these things where uh, that that challenge is, is misplaced. Um, there are no Title I courts in Dodd-Frank. I mean, this is about whether or not the action is going to be reviewed by a Title III court. Now, you can argue about the, the methodology and whether there's a uh, procedural due process, uh, although there is notice and opportunity to be heard, which is the general standard from Gold, Goldberg v. Kelly and, 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 uh, and the like, but um, there isn't a, it's not a situation, the problem with the bankruptcy court was it, it was it was overruled and uh, it was fixed ultimately by, uh, by, the, um, uh, by the Congress. But the, the problem was that the bankruptcy courts had sort of completely consumed uh, the uh, jurisdiction and completely displaced the, the Article III uh, courts. And there was a change from a mechanism where there had been bankruptcy referees and they were replaced by bankruptcy court judges, but under Title, you know, Title I. Well, we don't have anything like that here. I mean, all, all that we have in Dodd-Franks pertains to a, a Title III judicial review. You can argue about uh, the standards used, albeit, again, in part of the checks and balances, the, the Congress does have the right to uh, limit uh, the uh, the scope of review and uh, set the uh, set the jurisdiction. So I think you know the arguments pertaining to uh, to northern pipelines and uh, and the like are just basically, uh, in my view, uh, beside the point. Um, you know this is not strictly a legal argument, but as was suggested, you know by um, Ambassador Gray, the um, uh, the process contained in, in Dodd Frank may very well be an improvement over what happened fill-in-the-blank, AIG, Lehman, Willard Hotel, and, and the like. So quite frankly, the Congress certainly believes that they were uh, doing you know, more in terms of bringing a, a structure uh, to bear uh, in, in uh, making these decisions so that it's not just you know, one or two individuals who are uh, outside the, the public eye. Now, the question about this still being done in secrecy, well, um, 
uh, one presumes that uh, any financial institution that's in this uh, in this uh, difficulty, uh, at some point, you know, somebody might uh, very well be successful and uh, explain, you know, why it is that uh, the action is is inappropriate. Uh, so think about that, right? I mean, if this were a public proceeding, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the institution's uh, professional reputation would be besmirched even if they win within the judicial action. So, you know, prag pragmatism suggests that it needs to be done in a uh, confidential way. Uh, and quite frankly, that is um, the way that uh, financial uh, organizations are, are handled because of fears of, you know, run on, run on the banks or other uh, you know, detrimental uh, uh, impact to, to, the, to the organizations. All right. Um, I will skip over a couple other points and, uh, on that and, and turn to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, and try to be mindful of our time here. Um, you know, the, 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 uh, again, the questions raised are, are very fair and, and fine questions as to the uh, combination of potential combination of various roles and functions in the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, but, I mean, I start from the proposition that it's a PAS, presidentially appointed Senate confirm. There isn't one now, and there's a lot of controversy about, you know, how it should work and function until there is a PAS uh, individual, you know, in that, in that role. But ultimately, uh, there is presidential oversight uh, in terms of uh, the appointments uh, process. I mean, the, the uh, Dodd-Frank calls for a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed uh, director. Uh, in terms of vagueness with regard to uh, the operating uh, standards, um, I mean, I guess there's, there's two ways of looking at this. I mean, in terms of any challenge, it has to be an actual case or controversy. It has to be, it, it, not, let me just step back for a second. I'll talk a moment about the standards that are in place, but in terms of how would this become ripe for uh, a, a review. I mean, there, there, act, there has to be an actual case or controversy. It has to be on how the words themselves are being applied, not necessarily how they're written. All right, so it, it, you really need to have, and someone, of course, has to have standing to be able to bring to bring that uh, to bring that matter. Um, so, uh, holding all those things uh, to the to the side, you then come into a question as to you know whether or not the uh, the uh, governing legal standards and the source of legal authority uh, supporting them are are pertinent, or whether they are too vague and. Uh, uh, you know, just too confusing or, or, or so forth. Again, the, the critical terms are unfair and deceptive uh, practice. Now, believe me, we've had clients that have been uh, quite uh, aggressive and, and, and appropriately so, I might add, in terms of uh, framing uh, what the limits and the parameters of what those magic terms, you know, may be in terms of FTC, FDIC, uh, Fed, OCC, and there's some side issues as to whether or not you know the OCC and the FDIC have the full authority versus the Fed on some of those things. But that's not uh, a topic for today. But the point is, there's you know it's a great uh, you know deal of, of precedent uh, in the in that area. Of course, standing here today, I cannot predict uh, whether uh, the pres presidentially appointed Senate confirmed director of the Consumer Protection Bureau will uh, concatenate you know that precedent onto the new. A line of authority that uh, develops uh, from you know from the agency. Now, in terms of the uh, term abusive, which I believe Mark 
mentioned uh, in his opening remarks. He's absolutely right. That is a new term. It's not a term of art, uh, and uh, it's it's very open-ended. Uh, and uh, I, I would agree with the uh, the point that uh, it will be developed uh, inevitably over you know a series of years with uh, enforcement actions and other you know and other litigation. But you know I dare say that uh, we've had a whole host of. Uh, uh, administrative agencies over the course of our history that have had, you know, reasonably open-ended, uh, you know, concepts that, of course, are, you know, developed and interpreted uh, over time, including in the financial services uh, area, you know, the SEC uh, included, as well as the, the bank regulatory uh, officials. Um, uh, in terms of oversight, I, I have to, I'm going to have to smile on this one a little bit. In terms of oversight of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, no doubt about it in terms of the, uh, the limits on, on the appropriations as, uh, as uh, detailed uh, in, the, in the Act. Now, a couple things. One, uh, they could overspend their limits, i.e., they can run out or they can eventually get to a point where the budget exceeds the statutory authority. They have to go into the appropriations process you know, at that point. So uh, that's one potential uh, uh, analytical point uh, that might uh, be, be critical. But I would dare say that, you know, beginning since January of this year, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is under daily oversight from the House Financial Services Committee. There's near, you know, hardly a day that doesn't go by when there isn't, you know, a, an additional request for information about how the entity is being organized, how it's being staffed, uh, how it's uh, planning to uh, deploy its resources, uh, and, and any number of other things. And quite frankly, I think, um, not to give too much credit to, uh, to Elizabeth Warren on this point, but I think she's a little bit uh, grateful to receive these, uh, these uh, letters on, uh, on, and I'm exaggerating, on a daily basis, because then she can turn around and say, of course I'm an oversight. Look, you know, here's this whole host of uh, inquiries that have been placed uh, uh, to us, and here's our, our replies. Now, it's not the appropriations uh, oversight process, but she has certainly been under a great, uh, you know, uh, oversight. Um, uh, the other point that I would make in terms of the arbitrary and capricious standard, uh, I mean, I would dare say that uh, there would be no court uh, in the land that wouldn't inquire at a fundamental level as to the underlying structure and framework of Dodd-Frank or for that matter, you know, any other administrative process to get some sense as to what the regulatory purpose uh, was to be served by uh, the proposed law and, and so forth. Even if their standard of review was limited to an arbitrary and capricious standard uh, for, the, uh, for the administrators, but there, there needs to be a, uh, an understanding uh, at some fairly comprehensive level as to how the uh, framework works, doesn't work, uh, or other defects um, and, and limitations, quite frankly, on administrators before uh, making a decision about uh, the arbitrary and, and capricious. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to grow short on time, and uh, but let me just uh, quickly uh, touch on uh, the uh, the FSOC, the Financial uh, Stability Oversight Council. Uh, again, to the extent that there's concern about presidential oversight, PAS, I say, presidentially appointed uh, Senate confirmed. Uh, some of these individuals are uh, interim, but that is still satisfactory under you know, general administrative law processes that an agency that is headed by an interim uh, official should be you know, given uh, the same uh, authority as though 
you know, there is a, a PAS uh, in, in place. Now, there are non-voting members uh, in, the, uh, in the FSOC, and um, uh, there's not a formal recusal process, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, in terms of uh, uh, the uh, actions that are taken by the, by the FSOC. But, um, you know, I, I, I think the, uh, the Congress certainly in its wisdom believes that the expertise of uh, principally state officials that are involved as non-voting uh, members of the FSOC, you know, bring additional uh, data and, and, and uh, experience that helps inform uh, the um, the decision making process, and quite frankly, uh, gets you uh, beyond the quote inside the Beltway uh, thought. A um, couple other very quick points, and I will uh, sit down. Uh, in terms of the vague terms uh, in the in the FSOC, um, you know there are anti evasion uh, provisions, uh, so there are specific standards that the FSOC is to look to to make decisions, for example, as to you know, whether an entity is um, uh, to be viewed as significantly uh, important and significant and, and, and so forth. But there's some catch-all uh, provisions in, in those uh, delineations of authority to prevent uh, a, a, an evasion of the, uh, of the uh, uh, standards. So, that is, uh, that's difficult, obviously, for those of us in, in private practice to predict uh, how those will be, uh, you know, will be utilized. I mean, uh, it's not strictly a rule. Uh, I, wouldn't argue, I, I would argue that it's not a principles-based uh, regulatory uh, framework, but it's certainly uh, a very broad, you know, catch-all uh, arrangement. Whether that rises to the level of being constitutionally infirm, you know, I would respectfully suggest, uh, you know, not. But I do say that it becomes very challenging for for uh, all in, in uh, private practice and in private sector to uh, be able to predict with complete certainty uh, how um, how they will be applied. So, uh, with that, I will look forward to questions. Ambassador Gray, would you like to say anything before we open it up for questions? I, to me, the um, the key question is the limitation of review, and there's a certain tension in my colleagues' response. Oh, the courts can—I mean, the Congress can limit the courts and take away the jurisdiction on the one hand, in the beginning, but as he's ended up, he's saying, well, of course, these limitations don't really mean anything because the courts are going to be able to get into all the things that Congress has told them they can't get into. So I'm not sure I know what his, what his, what his point is, is that the limitations are legit or are they going to be ignored? I, I don't know which, uh, what, his, what his point is, but um, the difficulty remains that um, the normal interpretation role of the courts which, which is what has given meaning to terms um, abusive and deceptive uh, uh, and unfair. All of those words, as practiced by the Federal Trade Commission or whatever, FCC, whatever agency it is, uh, have uh, decades of, of uh, interpretation by primarily the D.C. Circuit in this city, but uh, by other courts as well, to say nothing of, of the Supreme Court. And that's what's put in... Uh, real jeopardy here, and you add that to uh, the isolation from other oversight, that's where I think the real problem is. 
I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I didn't raise it. But to point out on the secrecy, when they seize an institution um, and, and there's no judicial check on the issue about whether there's a risk to the stability of the United States, they can go to a corner drugstore and say, you know, you're in, uh, you're, you're, you're in financial difficulty. And, and um, I'm exaggerating, of course, but there's nothing to stop that. If you leak to the press that this thing is happening, you can go to jail. There are criminal penalties, imprisonment penalties, for uh, divulging that this seizure is taking place. All right. Um, we have three rules here. Wait for the microphone, identify yourself in any affiliation, and actually ask a question. The gentleman right there. Um, my name is uh, Bert Ely. I'm a banking consultant. This is a question for both uh, Boyden and Tim. With regard to uh, the potential for a takings challenge, it seems to me that there are, there are two specific aspects of Dodd-Frank where, where this question would be raised. First of all, with regard to the FSOC, uh, if there's a seizure and there's ultimately a cost uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the federal government, that that cost can be laid back on uh, the uh, a designated set of institutions on some kind of risk-based assessment basis. Uh, is that possibly, uh, in effect, granting too much of what would, in effect, be a taxing power uh, to, the, uh, to the FSOC? And then, very closely related to that, under Dodd-Frank, uh, uh, Dodd-Frank provided that, uh, uh, and, and the FDIC is uh, proceeding even beyond what I think Dodd-Frank uh, authorized in terms of uh, and a higher level of assessments uh, for deposit insurance on larger uh, financial institutions. Now, I believe there's going to be a legal challenge on that, that uh, uh, the FDIC is violating uh, the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. But I'm wondering if that challenge can go beyond that point again to uh, uh, a challenge under the takings uh, clause. I think you've sort of got two, two questions there. Um, one is whether there's a remedy uh, in, uh, in the Court of Claims for um, a takings, uh, uh, an extinguishment of a claim that some creditor had, uh, some, some contractor had with, uh, with uh, the company being, the institution being seized. It's, it's been cut out by the FDIC or the Treasury. Um, the law, this is, this is not totally clear to me anyway, maybe, maybe my colleague can add, but the law appears to extinguish Tucker Act rights to go uh, collaterally into the Court of Claims later to say, you know, I didn't get, uh, I didn't get all my money back, and, or I, too much of my money was taken. This law seems to, uh, to, to, to eliminate the Tucker Act um, uh, review of the Tucker Act uh, claims. On, so that's the question of, of, of the takings. On the question of whether there is a secret or, or, or a uh, separate taxing authority that gets around the appropriations process, I think there is. I think there is um, the capacity. It's not the Stability Oversight Board it, so much as it is the FDIC can go and get assessments from non-banks who haven't done anything wrong, uh, take the money and pay it, to whoever they feel like paying it to without any supervision by either Congress or the courts. Now, I think that's 
sort of a, a backdoor bailout authority. Um, sure, there's some structure to it, but I don't think there's enough structure. And that's, of course, what makes a good legal case and why we have lawyers. And I'm open for business. No. I'm <laughs> Tim, do you have anything Sure. Else? I mean, I guess as a general proposition, of course, there's no property interest in the state of law, right? I mean, so uh, you don't really have a vested interest in the state of the tax code. You don't have a vested interest from a property standpoint in uh, regulatory uh, issues and circumstances. So you need to demonstrate a contractual you know, obligation or some other uh, arrangement like that where the government uh, is, at, uh, uh, is at risk as a contracting party. Uh, I mean, I, I think um, uh, it, you know you'd be hard pressed to uh, to make that case as a result of Dodd Frank. In terms of the broader question about whether it's a backdoor uh, arrangement and so forth, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But in terms of the constitutional dimension, uh, Congress set it up. So if Congress chooses not to, or try, Congress becomes uh, dissuaded by the actions, um, they can change it. Obviously, subject to a pre presidential veto, but. Um, uh, you know, I, I think at this point, I, I don't think it would be uh, uh, infirm for under a constitutional analysis. Let me just say that that, that in in the um, railroad reorganization cases, what the what what the court said saved that regime, which was lacking a lot of oversight, um, um, was the collateral capacity, collateral ability to go in under the Tucker Act into the Court of Claims. And that's, it's that safety valve, which was critical to the court's decision in those cases, uh, it's that safety valve which I think has been eliminated by, uh, by Dodd-Frank, if I didn't make that clear the first time. Gentleman in the front row here. It's on. My name is Per Kurovsky from the Voice and Noise Foundation. I'm no lawyer. I'm not an American citizen either, but I have a very concrete question about the constitutionality of one part there. The Frank Dodd Act uh, forces the disclosure of payment by resource extractor issuers, uh, the revenues they pay to different governments, that they have to disclose that to the Security Exchange Commission. Now, in the Act, it says that this has to be in accordance uh, as the term it, consistent with the guideline, guidelines of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, well known as EITI. EITI is something created by Tony Blair in the 90s in England, currently working in Norway. And EITI has as its second principle the following. We affirm that management of natural resources wealth for the benefit of a country's citizens is in the domain of sovereign governments to be exercised in the interest of their national development. Uh, this means that EITI says oil revenues, for instance, has to be managed by the government. Uh, does this not go completely against uh, the whole constitutional layout of this country? You leave someone else to decide, put up the, uh, another country to decide, and that other one has some principles that obviously do not concur with the principles in the U.S. Sovereignty implications, interesting. Anybody have anything on that? I, I, mean, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I certainly don't want to sound uh, glib in my, in my response because um, I want to be respectful of, of the question uh, uh, posed. But I mean, the reality is that uh, that particular provision, my understanding was, you know, it was you know, part of the sausage-making process of gathering uh, requisite votes to support 
uh, the overall, you know, Dodd-Frank, uh, you know, measure. So uh, the, the legislative history of it is probably largely unhinged, you know, from the core uh, financial uh, issues uh, that were, uh, you know, at, at debate and, and considerable uh, consternation. And I'm not saying that was a last moment element that was included, but it was certainly a so-called you know, incentive for uh, the particular legislator who uh, who added you know added that. Um, I, I'm not really qualified to, to comment on the on the merits. Yeah, it's it's, it's certainly valid law, and it's it's uh, it's it's uh, operative and, and, and the like. Um, but I uh, uh, you know within the framework of, of today's uh, debate, I I think it came through the normal legislative process, and the SEC will you know, will administer it. Uh, you know, uh, appropriately. Mark? I'll just make the, the point prefacing that uh, not, a, not a lawyer either, uh, but that Section 1502 was, you know, no, no discussion before conference, added essentially in, literally in the dead of night, uh, terrible in terms of how process is made. Uh, and as a general matter, uh, I think using the SEC to do anything other than financial disclosure is just bad policy in general. If you want to deal with min conflict minerals, you deal with conflict minerals. And this is just not the way to do it in terms of policy. And delegating authority to, to foreign uh, tribunals or governments or what have you is, uh, to say the least, problematic. So, Mark, perhaps we'll have to do an op-ed on this. Uh, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. So. <laughs> okay. Well, Delegation. That's true. That's going to be an interesting question. I'm. I have no familiarity with this provision. Roger. Pilan with the Cato Institute. Um, with respect to the court stripping measures that uh, the two of you have talked about, um, the uh, left will be heard to scream loudly uh, in cases like the recent. Uh, uh, enemy combatant cases, and uh, yet we've heard them little at all in a case like this. In those cases, the court has managed to get around the court stripping, um, in some cases simply by plainly ignoring it. I'm wondering what the two of you think the prospects are of the court uh, piercing the veil, as it will, as it were, because this isn't an entirely clear area of the law, Article 3, Section 2, court stripping, and so... I'm wondering if you see any prospect, because if there isn't, then we are left simply to the tender mercies of the Congress who have given us this measure that essentially has established one more aspect of the modern executive state. Well, my, my take um, is that the courts will... <laughs> will, will declare... Uh, uh, impossible. You know, we'll, we'll declare that they have the right to do, to do what they're going to do. Um, I was on a panel debating this case, this issue, in part with um, Professor Levin at Washington University, and he said, oh, "Well, they'll just ignore it." Um, and uh, and I think that's probably right, um, but that isn't an aspect of court stripping. It's an aspect of, <laughs> of court ignoring. I mean, you know, it's a and uh, that's what I think is going to more likely to happen. Court stripping, if this were part of a well-thought-out bill that came out of judiciary that decided it was going to limit on a principal basis the jurisdiction of the federal courts, 
for A, B, C, D, and if E, F, G kind of issues, that I think, of course, would be would be would be legitimate. Uh, but this is not a systemic. This is not a, a comprehensive court stripping bill. This is a selective little um, noodling around, and I think the courts wouldn't accept that. So as as legitimate court stripping. So I think they're going to ignore it. I think. Uh, Levin is right. They're just going to um, they're just going to say we have the right to interpret the statute, even though the court, even though the Congress said we couldn't, and we we will will uh, to the extent necessary to make those interpretations declare the statute unconstitutional to allow us to say what we want to say about it. That's what I think they'll do. Yeah, I, I would just add you know a couple points. Uh, obviously, with regard to uh, military courts and military matters, there is a precedent that there is our. You know, special cases and take it into a different realm as contrasted with uh, administrative law uh, process, uh, and, and uh, there's more leeway potentially for uh, you know, Congress uh, you know, in the administrative law process uh, to work on limiting uh, appellate review as well as um, uh, the standards of, of review and, and the like. But you know, I, I return to the point that. Um, uh, we are talking about Title III review here. We're not talking about a special uh, referee system or some other special Title I tax court analogous, you know, uh, structure. So you really are in to the uh, the Article III uh, review and, and process. And then to uh, uh, make the point in terms of what standards are, are going to be used, obviously uh, it doesn't uh, have to be a, a Chevron-type, you know, standard of, of deference to uh, the administrative agency as uh, as the fact finder uh, and an arbitrary and capricious standard is acceptable for for the Congress to uh, you know to utilize I I will readily concede the point that uh, the way the Dodd-Frank Act is constructed you know does not uh, suggest that uh, there was a comprehensive uh, review that would uh, be more fulsome if there had been a Judiciary Committee uh, involvement and, and a leg I think it would be uh, ludicrous for me to uh, try to defend that uh, that point, uh, but the point uh, with regard to uh, how the arbitrary and capricious standard will function, uh, you know, one person's interpretation is the courts will ignore it. Another person's interpretation, and I guess this is closer to my position, is that uh, a careful court will try to understand the regulatory purpose of the framework and really understand uh, the uh, the elements of what. Is to you know what is the mis you know to use the classic terms what was the mischief that was identified by the Congress what is the remedy that the Congress wishes to bring to address that mischief and then uh, after there's an understanding of the overall structure the court has to constrain itself by looking at whether or not the actions by the administrative agency head is arbitrary or capricious in that overall framework. Lady in the front row in the back. My name is Li Yang. I would like to talk about this in a broader sense as a consumers, as a taxpayers, and as a citizens. And I think for this financial reform, I suppose we have to, for the benefit of the general public or general consumers, and all the time, every time this legislation it tries to say they want to fix some problem, uh, whether that's whistleblower or whether there's any other legislation from local to federal, my question is, uh, why can we spend our effort to fix the problem to project to those who really may 
error or criminal or fraud, fraudulent act rather than pay some attention to legislation and go nowhere. Every time it's a, a debate or a constitution, after all, the constitution say we are protecting the people, equality and quality and justice, and we are supposed to have peace rather than you know, debate after debate and go nowhere, basically, because we are depending on 5-4 decision, which does take away all the people's rights. Okay. Well, the Constitution doesn't exactly say that. I'm going to rephrase the question to say, uh, if this reform doesn't do what it's supposed to do or doesn't solve whatever problems might be out there, what kind of um, uh, reforms would you propose instead of or you know, now that we have Dodd-Frank on top of it? Let me, I just would say, I mean, I read about the Treasury report this week on um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and I, I thought that was pretty good, and that ought to get done. I mean, that that's, that's, has a lot more to do with the crisis we're in than, than all the remedies in this bill. Um, so let's hope that those uh, recommendations about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac get taken into uh, account and acted upon, because that's where the fundamental problem was. Mark? Uh, let me start with saying I, I, I share the disappointment and, and Congress not actually wanting to address uh, causes of the financial crisis. And, and to me, my biggest criticism of Dodd-Frank, among many, is that it actually doesn't do anything to stop future financial crises and, in my opinion, actually makes them more likely. Uh, but that said, uh, I will echo the sentiment. Uh, I, I might take a little bit different uh, approach on how strong I thought the report uh, Treasury HUD report on Friday was, but I do think focusing on Freddie and Fannie is an important point to make. And I'll say as well, you know, we do need to some, do something about fixing uh, our monetary system. The Federal Reserve was a primary driver of the housing bubble, and this is left unsaid and undone. Uh, so I think we are heading down this road again. Um, I remain unconvinced that it was really fraud or criminal behavior while clearly present. Uh, I don't see that as the driver of where we are today. Uh, lady in the second last row there. Deborah Cayetani with Democracy Work. I had a question, um, and then I wanted to pose something to you. Is there overlap? It, would you, do you folks see overlap in any uh, uh, law enforcement function, DHS? Should this have been articulated in, in a different way? Um, and uh, uh, do you see a, any similarity between the structure that you have in writing and the smart grid for elec electricity and energy? I, 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 looking over it, I had seen some similarity and was concerned that with that much technical ability to pinpoint transaction or to o have oversight would effect effectively create or produce in writing, in, in law, a financial smart grid, which is somewhat invasive. So um, those, those are my two questions. I'll make, I'll make a, a, a quick comment, and that is certainly one of my concerns about the act in general is it does rest on an assumption of, you know, this is really a problem that regulators with sufficient discretionary authority can fix. 
that there aren't any knowledge problems, that there aren't any uh, things that the regulators can't figure out how to do ahead of time, that we can simply just identify. If we get a smart bunch of people around the table, we can identify the institutions that threaten our financial system. Uh, I will say as an aside, having been a staffer in Congress, when we identified two of those institutions, uh, Freddie and Fannie, and Congress chose to do nothing about it, then you know I'm fairly skeptical that we will identify institutions in the future and we will have the willingness, particularly during a bubble when everybody is very much enjoying that bubble, to do anything about it. So my, my bottom line comment with that is this, this legislation wishes away all of the knowledge problem that inevitably face regulators and pretend that they simply don't exist. I would just, um, you know, make the point in terms of uh, law enforcement and, and shifting of power. I mean, the Treasury Department becomes an enormous force uh, in the uh, oversight and ongoing policy-making role for uh, the commercial bank sector and more broadly, uh, investment banking and uh, and insurance companies to the extent that they're identified as uh, significantly uh, important uh, financial institutions. That's a it's quite a shift. I mean, uh, you know, traditionally. Uh, the uh, uh, role of, uh, of the Fed and the other bank regulatory agencies, FDIC, et cetera, have been determinative in terms of how to uh, regulate and supervise the, the financial industry uh, at large. But this is you know, quite a, a different uh, role for Treasury, and you know, there are uh, you know, additional resources and divisions and other elements that are created to support the Treasury uh, in, this, uh, in this new role going forward. Gentleman on the aisle. I'm Bill Coleman. Uh, I really thank you, I, although clearly you have killed the weekend for several people in the room. We'll have to go back to the library and do some research. But, you know, Dodd and Frank were both very able legislature, and yet they drafted this bill. Does it have anything to do with the fact that originally, when our founding fathers created the United States, the one thing they made fairly clear that they didn't want a national banking system? The statute where they passed it for two of them but they specifically said that if after 20 years, the statute's dull and bored unless uh, Congress passes another statute, which it didn't do it. And what, what the congressmen here are trying to do is to take action by other institutions really not really involved in the federal government and somehow be able to uh, get it so that the federal government uh, uh, can uh, levy a tax on them. You know, that's a, a fascinating uh, question and, and very incisive and, and, and precise. Um, you know, there's been an um, uh, ongoing saga as to the desirability and interest and political support throughout American political culture for national banks and holding to the side of a moment a central bank. And, you know, there, there are uh, periods of time you know, before the Civil War when there were efforts to have you know, national bank uh, systems and there were sort of special protections that were brought to bear in terms of where national banks can be sued or not be sued and um, not have them necessarily subjected to uh, home uh, state court uh, issues where there might be prejudice uh, against a, a national uh, entity and, and so forth. 
I mean, over time, uh, and meaning over time, meaning post-Civil War, um, uh, there you know, came to be a actual or begrudging acceptance to you know, concept of a federal system and a national you know, bank system. So some of those protections that Congress, previous Congresses had, had put in place you know, started to uh, uh, fade away or be, came, you know, be viewed as anachronistic and, and, and the like and just uh, were, were superseded or, or, or supplanted. So, I mean, there's, you know, that tension remains. I mean, and, and it's evident in this, uh, in this bill uh, in a variety of areas which we haven't touched upon in terms of preemption and the um, potential uh, enforcement role of a state attorney general uh, and the like. But that's all within kind of the, what I would describe, and I think as you posited, the traditional banking uh, system. So then that leads to the, the next question of, well, where do you make the leap of logic, if you will, to encompass entities that are not uh, enjoying the, the benefits of the federal uh, safety net with regard to deposit insurance, particularly, uh, and, and the like. And, um, you know, obviously Congress uh, came to a conclusion that uh, the uh, large entities that are not commercial banks that are significantly important are so intertwined in uh, capital markets, derivatives trading, uh, you know, and other uh, arrangements that they were benefiting from the market facilitating process for clearing and settling and, you know, the, the basis for, you know, modern uh, uh, capital markets that it was, you know, a sufficient nexus to you know, put this process in place to uh, protect uh, the uh, the economy as a whole. If one of them were were to fail, that doesn't uh, fairly answer the question as to the merits of uh, the burdens associated with that and the um, uh, pros and cons and uh, whether it's a, a proportional response in terms of the the costs that might be imposed upon you know entities that you know will never uh, perhaps uh, fail, but. Um, I, I think that's the kind of the the logic hook by by Congress in terms of extending beyond um, the uh, deposit insurance system. Uh, well, let there be no mistake about this. This is an ex an amazing extension, and um, hedge funds probably ameliorated the situation. Um, many of them don't do anything that is systemically uh, risky. But they are subject to seizure. Pension funds are subject to seizure. Um, uh, endowments, college endowments are subject to seizure. Um, and it's not that any of these institutions is actually going to get seized you know, secretly on pain of imprisonment. Um, but the power that the Fed and the Treasury now have to threaten. Oh, you want to... You want to... Uh, you want to well, let me see now. Uh, let's see what. Why haven't you lent money to so and so? Um, I'll tell this little anecdote on myself. My family was involved <clears throat> years ago with the. Um, I'm from North Carolina with the founding of poor benighted Wachovia Bank, <clears throat> hundred years ago, and uh, Volcker found this out um, when he was about to go down to Winston Salem, where I'm from, to. Uh, do some talking at Wake Forest, and he discovered uh, that, of course, uh, uh, Salem was a Moravian community, like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where his wife came from. So he got all sorts of, he came and had lunch at the White House, and wanted to talk about all the Moravians and all this and all that. And then, and then I made the connection with him to, to Wachovia, which he hadn't thought of. And he takes his book out, and he looks up Wachovia, 
and he goes across in the printout, and he says, Wachovia, no foreign loans. How did they get by with that? How did they get by with making no foreign loans? And within a matter of weeks, they'd made a few foreign loans um, at, the, at the Fed's direction. Well, that was 20 years ago. I mean, think of the power that these agencies now have, not over just banks. I mean, that would be one thing. But over every hedge fund, every, every insurance company, which has typically been, been regulated at the state level in the McCarran-Ferguson for decades, I, I, to me, it's, it's, it's just astonishing. And there are no bright lines anymore. And I think that th this is very dangerous, very, very dangerous, because we'll never know the threats that are being made. Uh, and right now, uh, I know, uh, I can tell you, that there's a lot of, uh, of um, uh, consternation about this legislation, but you'll never see anyone who is con who's showing the consternation go public about it because the retaliation will be swift and severe. Wait for the mic, please. Hi, my name is Andrea Pesoros, and I'm actually a bank analyst. Um, isn't there a huge amount of um, largesse, though, that the private sector has access to? I mean, if you think about the discretionary power of bank management to um, you know, write contracts with uh, the over-the-counter derivatives contracts. There was no checks and balances on that. And um, even any kind of clearinghouse is all controlled often by the major financial institutions. So the amount of discretion and the kind of um, the way that they, the regulators already stepped back over the last decade of how those major financials handle themselves. I mean, it just really, doesn't it really look like that the private sector really has a huge amount of power? That um, is because the regu the Fed anyway m didn't check at all what the um, big financials were doing. Um, so to me, it just looks like it's just going to be another management gravy train for the big financials. They're going to have a huge amount of power. The European major financial institutions will have a huge amount of power um, to um, coordinate or call it whatever you want. But I mean, to me, it just looks like a lot of smoke and mirrors. And you're right about, you know, where there are bright, there are no bright lines, of course, and, and just no oversight at all. But I mean, it just looks again like it's it's going to be a a, a, a wild. Um, you you name who's got the power behind the curtain, but the, they're going to have a, 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 an Oz face that'll distract everything and everybody. So no oversight of the government agencies and no oversight of the private sector, apparently. Uh, any comments on that? Um, I, let me say, and I think it's probably perhaps worse. I mean, I, I certainly share the sentiment that Dodd-Frank Dodd is mostly smoke and mirrors. I mean, the question is ultimately whether regulation constrains the private sector or whether it... Uh, certain actors in the private sector are able to leverage regulation to their own advantage. And I do think that one of the outcomes of Dodd-Frank is going to be greater concentration in the banking system. Uh, and I think one of the outcomes, I maybe worry about the other side of systemically important institutions, which is once they are labeled as such, that sends a, a signal to the marketplace that if you look at the precedents we have set, that we will not let their creditors take losses. Uh, which means to me that they will be able to borrow at lower funding costs than their rivals, again, adding concentration to our banking system and in benefiting those institutions that are too big to fail. So the question at the end of the day is, will these small increases in capital and examination costs outweigh 
the decline in your funding costs? Uh, clearly, that's an empirical question that is yet to bear out, but it does concern me that the outcome will be that this actually favors the largest institutions. Um, so I, I see no, ben no reason to think that this has changed much in terms of behavior of either the, the private sector or the government. Uh, I would note at the end, um, there are those of us who do believe that the ultimate uh, constraint on the private sector should be you should be allowed to fail. You should go out of business if you screw up. Your shareholders should be wiped out. People who lend you money should take losses. Uh, and that should be the ultimate check. And this bill removes that check. I can just make one of my uh, favorite quotes from Adam Smith, who, who really worried. His greatest fear, I think, was that, uh, that the private sector special interests would grab parts of the government regulatory machinery and, you know, engage in a lot of rent-seeking. And, and one of his fa my favorite line is, a government made up almost exclusively of merchants is the worst form of government of all. I would, I mean, just add a couple of quick points. I mean, I, and, and I'm echoing, I think there clearly will be uh, opportunities for regulatory arbitrage as a result of the, uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, structure. Uh, I think um, another uh, issue always is the... Uh, technical uh, capabilities of uh, regulatory authorities to stay apace with market innovations, particularly in, um, in the market clearing, capital markets uh, area, and whether the, the regulators are always lagging uh, behind in terms of um, uh, you know, just their, their uh, capabilities in, in that area. Uh, and then, of course, there's self-regulation. I mean, just let's talk to anybody uh, who was in a major decision-making role at Lehman and the liquidity crunch that uh, the market imposed on Lehman and near Lehman entities. So um, there is the power of the, of the markets uh, through the self-regulatory mechanism. Time for one last question. Gentlemen along the wall here. Hi, my name is George I'm in the banking software business. Uh, uh, in regards to Boyden's point about how any entity that might object to any of this uh, could suffer uh, retaliation, what do you all think is the likelihood or the prospect or the roadmap in which there will be court challenges to the constitutionality or other aspects of these statutes? Well, I think there probably are entities, consumers uh, out there who have nothing to lose from retaliation and who um, have a lot to lose uh, from the bill who, who, who will surface over time. So I think there will be litigation. I'm just saying that many of the logical people to do it with the funds to pull it, you know, to, 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 to adequately fund it are probably not going to be seen because of the possible retaliation. But I think, I think there will be challenges. I'm going to, again, maybe share a concern on the other side of it, which is uh, in terms of non-bank systemically important institutions, uh, I think at the end of the day that, one, the council will weigh error in terms of having it very sweeping, because if any of these institutions fail, it's always easy to say, well, we regulated them. But, but their management was terrible, so they failed anyhow, so it's not our fault as regulators. Because I think the important thing to keep in mind is not one regulator has lost their job because of the failures during this crisis. So they don't lose their jobs. And in fact, some of them, such as former presidents of the New York Fed, we get promotions when they screw up. Um, but that said, 
the thing that concerns me is that these entities will figure out how to work that process to their advantage. Again, I focus on the funding costs. I would also emphasize at most we will see, say, insurers and other companies subject to the capital regulations that banks have. Those are already non-binding for those institutions. Almost any insurer is more heavily capitalized than your typical commercial bank. So for, again, you'll have regulations. They'll send an examiner by once a year. The, the, the regulations would be quite minimal, and I think, again, these institutions will learn how to rig the system to their own benefit and will largely not complain about it. Well, uh, I'll ask you to thank the panel in just a moment. Please join us upstairs for lunch where you'll notice, among other things, the new modern art sculpture. You think it's a crane of some sort, but it's actually the, uh, the installation piece, so thank you very much.